Okay, November the 18th, lesson 48, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 5 today. We're looking at today the second of three issues that Christ brings forth under the general title of charitable deeds. Last week we looked at giving in the first four verses from chapter 6. And today we'll look at prayer, and we kind of have to focus this down today because prayer in the Word of God is certainly a large, large topic. We could come at it from a a number of directions. I think we'll do best this morning if we just stay focused on the Scriptures because this will be a two-part lesson. Next next lesson we'll look at uh, Christ's model prayer, and it'll be kind of the practical approach. And yes, certainly a scriptural approach about how we think about prayer, what we actually pray about as the disciples come to Christ and ask him to teach us to pray, which he will do, and we'll look at that. But these four verses that we'll look at uh, this morning are still in the same vein of Christ coming and, and requiring people to first deal with their heart, whether it's about giving that we looked at last week or now prayer, later even fasting, anything that we do for him, he reminds us that he knows the heart. He's an evaluator of the heart. We'll mention that many times because when he calls us to prayer, he calls us to a level of preparation in our life. A level of preparation. And how we're coming at him, if you will, the motive behind our request or even our praise is known First and foremost, to God. He knows, as we say, why we do, what we do, when we do it. He knows that. It reminds us of a, of a day that's coming. We'll refer to from 1 Corinthians when we get there. But there's going to be a day when it's all going to be made clear. An issue of reward. Even in our prayer life. You know, being able to receive from God because our heart was right. To be on the, the same page with him. God God knows that. He knows every little nuance that's between our ears that has anything to do with our true motivation. And he wants us to approach him in purity. And certainly when we come before him for prayer and uh, as he says our our secret prayer time. We're going to that secret place we'll look at in just a moment where he's going to meet with us and certainly We want to be genuine and be well prepared for what we're doing. It's one of the greatest privileges that we have as believers is to be able to approach the God of the universe, the true and living God, pour out our heart to Him, and have Him literally, words, but speak to us, to reveal to us, to manifest to us, the truth about who He is, what our need really is. The Word indicates that as I prayed that so often we don't really even know our need. We just know what we want. We just know that and perhaps what we need. And we want to be genuine in that, but God even knows that better than we do. So when He talks to them about giving this particular group that He's before there on the mountain, then He just moves right into this area. It begins talking about it, and there's a lot to look at here. I hope I can get through this, but it was just really, really interesting. 
particularly when we look at what would have been on the, uh, the average Jewish person's mind, not to say nothing of the example of the scribes and Pharisees, those that, as it says, like to pray and like to receive attention for their prayers. He deals with that first and foremost. So interesting. So let's just look at this in chapter 6 of Matthew, beginning with verse 5 here. We'll just continue on. I want us to just really stay focused here because, as I say, we'll look at prayer from a practical standpoint uh, next time. So Christ says, when you pray, and you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. And it's good to give some attention here to specific words that we have here. Even the first word there, he says when you pray, or better rendered, whenever you pray. A particular Greek word that denotes that this is going to happen. Because he doesn't say if you pray, that would have been an entirely different word that he would have used here. But he says, when you pray, it's a certain clear expectation that followers of Christ are going to pray. So we could stop right here and say, okay, how much of your day do you give to prayer? And is prayer a first option for you? And whatever your day requires or whatever you're being challenged with during that day. Prayer, talking to God, quite frankly. That's the best, that's the simplest definition. Just talking to Him. Making yourself accountable to Him. And He says, this is going to happen. This is the uh, suggestion here. He's saying this is the way it will be. When you pray, it would be uncharacteristic for a Christian not to pray and not to have a desire to communicate with the Lord. And it also says, at least according to the commentator Quarles, he says this word could be used too to really to remind people that a fixed time of prayer is not necessarily what Christ is talking about here. That the word would indicate, now I'm not talking about you know, the, the three times daily you're supposed to pray, but when you pray, when you have a need to pray because of your relationship, because of your interaction, your personal interaction, your submission to God, when you pray along those lines. So he's saying just based on the word usage, it could indicate that as well, that Christ is actually striking against those who think that you just can only pray during certain times, you know, during the day, which was laid out for the Jews. In fact, I've got a, a lot of them here. I mean, they had specific prayers required for various situations. So to give you an idea uh, from a social perspective, religious perspective from their day, this is what they looked at. And I've got like 14 of them listed here. Listen, what they did in the morning, you know, the Shema, all right, you know that. They would stand and recite the Shema as a prayer. They would do it in the evening. Now they would stand in the morning and they were to recline in the evening and do that. You'll be amazed at the rules and regulations about, about prayer. They had certain benedictions that went with each of those that they memorized and that they prayed each, and time, that each time they did the Shema. So the evening Shema included a reflection on the Exodus. They had to go back and pray a prayer about God calling His people out of Egypt. 
They prayed at the beginning and at the end of each meal. They had different prayers for fruit. They had different prayers for vegetables. They had different prayers for bread, for unripened fruit, for sour wine, and even for locusts. I guess they still ate locusts. If the meal was larger than an olive, and this was their fastidious rule, if the meal was larger than an olive, they had to pray over that meal. If you put something in your mouth smaller than an olive, you didn't have to pray over that. Wow. Uh, what else? What else? At the end of the meal, uh, one prayed for the lamp that lit the room for the meal, the spices, and what's called the habadala, which is the ceremonial marking of the end of the Sabbath, the habadala. They had to pray over that as well. They had to pray if they were approaching the site of a miracle. If they saw a shooting star, there were certain prayers that they prayed. Experiencing an earthquake or a clap of thunder or a flash of lightning, seeing mountains or seas or rivers or hills or anything that manifested to them the glory of God, which he, of course, reveals in his creation, they were to pray. And there were certain prayers for that. They prayed for good news. They prayed for bad news or over bad news. If they were building a new home, they prayed. If they were buying new cooking utensils, they prayed over those, a separate prayer. If they were entering or leaving town, they prayed. And then the Jews were expected to pray what's referred to as the, as, let me make sure I get this right, the, the tefillah, which in itself was 18 various benedictions. They were to pray that three times a day. And then there was a, an additional tefillah that was recited in corporate worship. So that's what they'd done with prayer. And that's really not even what Christ is going to talk about specifically. He's going to talk about the individual and the heart of the individual as they approach God. We look at his example. and Christ was the example in all these things. We looked at his example in giving. We can look at his example in prayer. His prayers were always personal. They were always spontaneous and that they were responsive to the needs of the moment. This was his example. They were always very expressive and plainly put forth. You might say they were an example of him simply talking to his heavenly Father from the heart. Of course, he is our example. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, you can read early in the morning while it was still dark, it says that Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And in that case, in context, Jesus was praying and and preparations for going and preaching in another area. He was our example. In his humanity, he was our example. Always the God-man, but yet experiencing all that we experience. To find that place, a predetermined place. No doubt this was something that he had determined he was going to do the night before. He goes to that place a place where he won't be bothered, a place to come apart from the daily cares. And he talks about those things. He says, your day has enough trouble of its own, does he not? He experienced that. Again, in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away, it says, to the wilderness and pray. And this he did when the large crowds were seeking him for healing. And they wanted to hear him preach. And you remember the, what it was like. I mean, when Christ was doing this, the throngs, the masses of people that followed him. You may remember one time that he tried to get away. He put the disciples 
in a boat and went across. And while he's going across, well, they're running around to the other side. When he gets over there, there they are. Man's trying to go on vacation. They never, he never, never was able to do it. He became weary, just like we become weary. But he was faithful in prayer. And his example in prayer is certainly an example for us. He says plainly, in plain language, don't be like the hypocrites. Not like the hypocrites. And it's interesting here, because uh, as I, <clears throat> I look at these, these Greek words and so forth that are just so full and so specific, he's looking at here, it's what's referred to as an, an, an imperative future. Imperative future, which expresses a command. It's something that's considered to be very solemn, something that's universal, and there's something that's not going to change. It's, it's timeless. So when he makes that phrase, uh, not like the hypocrites, it's more than just the phrase itself. It's a very commanding uh, phrase. It's dealing with some real serious issues. We know that just from the word usage there. As we would say, this is a big deal. Okay, That's why he's saying as he often did, you know, sometimes truly, truly, or I say unto you, this is what he wants you to get. This is a very important thing. Don't be like the hypocrites. And we've talk about, talked about already our example being different and being what Christ wants us to be. He says and makes reference to those who stand and pray. And once again, the Greek language here clearly shows that the hypocrites because of the order of the words in the sentence, that was first and foremost. They love to stand and pray. There's an emphasis on them standing as well as praying. But it also means, and it's very clear in the language, they love to stand to pray only when they are in prime public view. That's what Christ said. That's how that was received when He spoke those words. And it indicates that other, otherwise, other than that, they don't like to pray. They only pray when it's beneficial to them. And he's drawing specific attention to that. Kneeling or for one to prostrate themselves in prayer would have been really, that would have required a little too much humility for those who were praying as Christ describes here as hypocritical prayer. They would never do that. And you may or may not know, if you go through the Bible, I understand, and you look and you record each time it talks about praying and prayer posture, as we've said, do you recall what the most prevalent prayer posture is from the Word of God? What is it? It's prostrate on your face before God. But the emphasis here is that they particularly want to stand they want to stand and be noticed, and they only want to do it when it's beneficial to them. So Christ is drawing attention to this. And as a result of this, prayers on the part of the religious community, they often became very perverted, very dramatic. You might even see tears and waving of arms and all this kind of thing. But all done for the purpose of being noticed. Not necessarily because somebody was incensed or outraged that the Word of God or the Law of God you know, had been discredited. They prayed for the wrong reasons. So they stand and pray to bring attention to themselves. 
And he says they like to do it in two places. He's very clear. They like to do it in the synagogues, and they like to do it on the street corners. So, in public worship, and in public outside of the synagogue, in this, in this case. And what they did, they would choose people to pray in the synagogue. And it was a socially accepted thing within their worship circles that they picked a person to do the prayer. That was a great honor during that time. So they loved that. They loved being approached and being asked to, hey, you, uh, you do the prayer today. I think Tyler's got the prayer today. So he's ready to go. But they would, they would do that and they would jockey for opportunities to do that, vie for position so that they could be recognized in an honorable way. This would have been something that happened every day for them. When it talks about the street corner in the actual language, it actually says specifically on the broad streets. And Christ here knows what's in the heart. That they go out and they pick a place. And it's not just the street corner in that it's public, but it's the biggest street corner. It's the one that has the most traffic. It's the one that sees people coming in and out and doing their daily business. This is where they want to go. So it was no real coincidence, I don't think, when the trumpet blew three times a day as it would to call them to prayer, when that trumpet blew that they just happened to be on the street corner, the biggest street corner. And of course, Christ knows this because He knows the heart of man. He knows why they're doing what they're doing. And He brings spe specific attention to it. He does. And again, they do it that they may be seen by men. Just a little bit. Let me make this point. It only takes just a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? Just a little bit of that desire. When you feel that in your heart, when you're doing something for Christ, for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of God, for the sake of His Word, you're following Him, and it's put you in the limelight. When you get uh, praise from people who genuinely love and care for you and appreciate your work and your service, and you identify within your own heart, within your own mind, that little bit of area that just kind of wants to, what's the word? Gloat? Whatever. You know, that's the starting point. And I would, just, I would just encourage you to call that what it is. We thank God that He manifests Himself through our obedience and through our faithfulness. We're thankful for that. We always have to be mindful of that, do we not? It's always such a temptation. Maybe greater for some than others, who knows. But I pray in my own life and heart that God would always call me into account over that. Do you have that kind of commitment and relationship within your own heart and soul right now in the things that you do for the Lord? Are they truly for Him? Because if they are, it takes a big burden off you, right? He's going to take care of all the details. All the things that don't go right, that don't work out, all the difficulties, whether they're relational or practical or whatever, operational, whatever. He's going to take care of that. Because you're not doing it for men. You're doing it as unto the Lord, even in our prayer life. And this was such a big deal that in Christ's day that He calls attention to that. They simply do it, and we're doing it to be seen by 
men. It reveals their true desire, their true motivation. I took a quote here from Quarles in the commentary book. Listen, he says, the hypocrite preferred these street corners to other locations for the same reasons that prostitutes did and modern advertisers do today. For the very same reasons. To be noticed. And for their own personal, personal benefit. That's amazing. And no coincidence that they were out there when the trumpet blew and it was time to pray. It reveals, as with any sin, because this was pattern behavior for them, and pattern behavior reveals their true desire, does it not? That's the same general principle in the life of any Christian regarding any sin. What you're committed to do repetitively says a lot about you. It says a lot, uh, a lot about you, a great deal about you. Well, they have their reward, just as with those, as we read about, who give for the wrong reasons. Certainly those, can you imagine, who pray for the wrong reason to be noticed have already received their reward. When I started looking at that and I thought about, thought about reward on a little broader level, and my mind went to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. Let me read this to you. Paul's talking the church he says according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder I laid a foundation and another is building on it but each man must be careful how he builds on it now I understand in context he's talking about the truth of the gospel but listen for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid which is Christ Jesus now if any man builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones things that can take the heat, right? Then he adds wood, hay, and straw, things that, that can't take the heat, things that are going to be burned up. He says each man's work will become evident for the day, talking about the judgment day, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Fire again here representing the piercing judgment of God. That day's coming. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. And on a smaller scale, or a different scale, the same applies regarding not just our prayer life, but in any of these things that Christ is going to talk about here that we do for him, charitable deeds. Is it going to be wood, hay, and stubble? Is that what it's going to be? Or is it going to be those things which can, as I said, take the heat, come out of the heat of God's judgment? He knows. He knows. And the, our response is, is really quite simple. This can change. Again, this is a heart change. This is coming before God and asking Him to look within our heart and to make sure that our motivations, that our desires are wholly within His will. And that we're doing what we're doing for His honor and glory. 
Look at verse 6 of chapter 6. But you, when you pray, he says, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And he's being very specific. He calls attention. But you, and he said this in a way that if they weren't looking at him, which I can't imagine, that they would have looked at him. Okay, But you, I got something for you. You need to hear this. When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father. This inner room is an interesting word. It's a specific word. It means any room inside a building that didn't have other doors or any windows. That's what they would have been thinking about when he said that. A place that really and truly ensures privacy. A place where we can go. A secret chamber, if you will. Somewhere that's secluded. Somewhere where you know you're not going to be bothered because that time, you need that time with God. You need that. You don't need to be bothered. You don't need to worry about somebody hearing you if you cry out to God, if you're praying to God, if you're pleading before God. It needs to be between you and Him. And we all, I trust, have maybe a place, or certainly we, we long for that experience in our prayer life. Because it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling when we can get away and experience and a feeling, but we can get away from the world and we can commune with God. We can pour out our heart. We can let every barrier come down. We have to come out of there clean because we instantly know we can't get His attention over there. He's going to deal with us. He's going to deal with our heart before we can approach Him. We're worshiping Him is what we're doing in prayer, in private worship. So we emerge clean when we approach Him rightly in that inner room i can remember as a young patrol officer going to a particular place that i love to go to out in west cobb dozed over now and got a couple of schools nearby and that that countryside place is gone but on particularly on a sunday morning i could drive out there i can remember driving out there with frost on the ground or even snow and there would be no traffic out there and i could pull up on the bridge that went across that little pasture creek and i could pour out my heart to god now, we could pull over every now and then, you know, and write a report or do something. So. But I remember those particular places and experiences out there. Oh, God moved. And I remember something about making sure that I got to that place at least every Sunday morning if I was working, you know, on the day shift. And how rich that time was because it was secluded. And I went with expectation knowing that God was going to deal with my heart and He was going to call me into account for something. I was... 21, 22 years old, and I can remember that, and I can remember being in tears before I got to that place in preparing to open up my heart for God. I pray that we continue to have those experiences when we approach Him. You go to that inner room, as He says, and you close that door and pray to your Father who is in secret. God's everywhere, is He not? He occupies every place. <coughs> every single place. There's no place that we can go that He is not there. The Bible says that the Father who hears in secret, in that secret place, will reward us because He's omnipresent. 
He occupies every place. He hears. He will reward us. Some of your translations may say that he rewards us openly. As best I can determine, that word openly is not there in the original text. He's going to reward us. For what? For our faithfulness in prayer. He's going to reward us for our pure motivation in prayer. He longs to communicate with us. He pleads with us through His Word to allow Him to do that. So He's there. When we come to Him, He wants us to desire Him more than anything else. Really desire Him more than what we're praying for. To desire His will. Verse 7 says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Meaningless repetition. This was an interesting word. The Greek word is the word batologio. Okay? And it comes, it it, it means to babble, really. But it noted that it was the only time it's used is right here in the New Testament, this word. And it can mean like speaking thoughtlessly or speaking uh, futilely with futility. But its most specific meaning is, the one that's supported the most, is to stammer over something or to babble or to, to not make sense. It's interesting that we could actually do that nowadays in our hearts and pour ourselves out to God. And literally what we're saying is so wrongly motivated that it doesn't make sense. He says, it doesn't make sense. It incorporates this prefix of the word. I said the word is batologio. The prefix is bata. That's one of those, what they call it, an onomatopoeic word that sounds like it's mean. And I know what you're thinking, bata, 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 swing, bata, okay. <laughs> but it's not, not quite like that. Bata, 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 you know, just somebody babbling. That's what it's talking about. Yeah. And no doubt he's saying, your day and time, you're acting like a pagan person when you do that. Because he says that's what the Gentiles do. That's the way they pray to their pagan God. Christ is saying it is the same thing. And to pray with wrong motivations. And to pray with, with some sort of, as he says, formula in mind. That if I say these words, then this is going to happen. I think that's the Latin. It's a vocus magici. It's these little words like the book gives an example like abracadabra or hocus pocus or things, words that you say that are going to evoke some sort of special attention by God. He doesn't work that way, he says. That's not the way it works. That's, That's literally pagan worship. People who in that day worshipped in a pagan way, claimed that they had to understand and approach God in the language of the gods, if you will. That would have been common. He says this practice is more akin to that, or specifically akin to that. Then, of course, he couldn't help but add in the commentary, he says, also, although many modern Christians address God in an ecstatic prayer language, the practice has no root in the teaching or in the example of Christ. We come before Him with a burdened heart, with a heavy heart, with a humble heart. Wanting first and foremost His presence. Wanting His wisdom. His response. We think we know. We may not know. We may be off a little bit in our desire and expectation. 
God wants us to come to Him. He'll clear it up. He says that they suppose that God is going to heal. It literally means they imagine. He says this is just in their mind. This isn't going to happen. God doesn't hear and respond to that prayer. You suppose that He will. The Greek word dokeo, He says, but no. Imagine, that's all. It's just in your imagination. You're deluded. It's delusionary for you. It's not going to happen. Why? Because of the condition of your heart. They think they're going to be heard. They suppose that they will be heard. He's not going to hear. He's not going to hear in that He responds. not going to happen. He makes specific reference to their many words. And actually, the New King James has it right. It means much speaking. Just talk, 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 talk. The more I talk, the more I pray, the more attention I get from God. In fact, along that line, one commentator, France, says, and regarding his uh, works on the Gospel of Matthew, he said of these people, he said, instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs, they think they must badger a reluctant deity into taking notice of them. That, that's not how God characterizes His relationship with us in prayer. Again, we're, we're asked to come. And He stands with His arms open and says, come, we'll later read about it in Matthew and study about it when we get to Christ's declaration. Come unto Me, He says, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. In that day, the Talmud actually stated, he who multiplies prayer will be heard. So it was the function of prayer. Multiply prayer. Isaiah 1.15 says, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers. Isaiah says, I will not listen. <coughs> I won't do it. And then he goes on after that, if you want to go and read in verses 16-20 through 20 that follow, he tells you how to prepare for prayer. We'll save that for later. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on the earth, so let your words be few. That's another way of saying have some humility. (laughs) Recognize who you are, where you are, what you are, who God is. Approach Him first and foremost in that fashion. And we understand that. We understand what Christ is drawing attention to here. But then you might say, well, how does that contrast to Jesus' teaching, say, in Luke 18.5, when He's talking about, and He gives the parable of the woman and the unjust judge, you know, and without reading it, I'm sure you're familiar, the woman who continues to go to the unjust judge says he doesn't fear God nor man, but He says at some point, because she continually comes and wearies him that he's going to grant her request and give him what she wants jesus would say when we come to him in that father son father daughter relationship he's going to give us what we need what does he say if your fathers your earthly fathers you know you come to them asking for bread he said they're not going to give you a stone They're going to give you what you need. He says, how much more will your heavenly Father do that? It's about relationship. It's about right relationship with Him. That's the key. That's the key. Because certainly James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins one to another, do a little groundwork, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And then it follows. And how many times have I 
laid down on this verse, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I like the translation, the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That gives me great confidence in prayer. A fervent prayer. A prayer properly prepared from the heart for the right reasons. That's what makes a prayer effective. And we pray within the will of God. Always within His will. And we see that. Jesus, again, was the example of that. For instance, you've got two examples. You've got the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thy will be done. And that most difficult time for him from a human perspective. I believe he sweat drops of blood. And then, as we'll see next lesson, in the model prayer. The model prayer. He typifies this. It's about yielding to the divine will of God. It's not about bending the will of God to suit us. And there are brands of religion that teach that. Just decide what you want in life. And if you pray rightly, you can bend the will of God. I can't think of anything more arrogant. So that's what he tells us to do and not to do. And we do have time for the last verse. Verse 8. So he simply says, and he finishes up here in this passage, these four verses, he says, do not be like them. And it's the picture of a father talking to his children. Do not be like them. Look at me when I'm talking. Do you ever say that to your kid? Look at me when I'm talking. Do not be like them. Recognize fully what they are, what they're doing. Do not be associated with that. For your Father knows your need before you ask. It is so relational. This prayer between us and Him. He already knows... And it's no coincidence that he doesn't say God here. He says Father. It's a specific emphasis upon the relational aspect of prayer. He is your heavenly Father. That's what Jesus said. He knows before you ask. If your earthly Father is going to give you good things, how much more will your heavenly Father do that? Don't be like them. Don't be like them. I referred to Matthew eleven twenty eight earlier. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And again, the context here is regarding the need for salvation. But he's talking about prayer. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls us. His desire is for us to come to Him. Not just for salvation. But as our Heavenly Father after that, to supply what we need to strengthen us, to give us clarity and direction in our Christian life. Not just to miraculously fulfill our desires. That's His desire for us. He knows what we need. He already knows. Asaph writes, Psalm 81, the psalmist Asaph. He says this, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. 
I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him. How about that? Talk about influence. And their time of punishment would be forever, but I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Really? That they would pretend to obey the Lord because of our faithfulness to Him which begins in prayer and follows through with our obedience? That's the impact of a godly life. And he uses this phrase here talking about getting honey from a rock. You get honey from a rock? And it's just a metaphor. He's talking about, I I can give you things. I can put things out for you. I put here, He will provide and He will make a way. That's what he's talking about. Getting honey out of a rock is nothing from God. It has to do with the motivation of our prayer life. Is it about Him or is it about us? Listen, this is what He wants to do and I close. We are to talk to God. Talk to Him. We call it prayer, but we talk to Him from the heart. We do it through Christ. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We do it on the validity of His Word and we come before Him in humility and with a submissive heart. He says that He will answer our prayer.